All right, you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 20. Study God around the room. And maybe if you don't have one, possibly in the back, you can throw a hand up. If you do not have a study God, you can throw a hand up. chapter 20, we're going to be, as we've been coming through the book of Acts together, we're going to be in verses 1 through 12 of chapter 20 today. Can everybody hear me in the back? Can you hear me, Ty? All right, let's pray. Father, we come to your word now to meditate here. And we want to be addressed by you, Holy Spirit. So please, please speak with us. Speak, speak to us this morning through your word. Lord, we come to you as a needy people. We come to you humbly, Lord. We have no wisdom of our own, God. We lean against your wisdom and your word. Lord, we love you. We love you, Lord. We believe that your word is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. We love you, Lord. God, let your word, let your word have an effect upon us today. Help us to listen, to hear, to read as doers of your word and not hearers only. Help us, Lord, please. In Jesus' name. This passage that we're on this morning, Acts 20, verse 1 through 12, um, it really puts something on display, I think, that, that uh, was, was said last week. Uh, Paul was called, I believe, Dustin, I believe I've heard my brother Greg say this as well, uh, that Paul is a gospel schemer. He's uh, making schemes and plans of how he's going to advance the kingdom of God, how he's going to build up the body of Christ, and he's always doing that. And so you see that? In this passage today, uh, as we read it in just a moment, you're going to see uh, Paul leave Ephesus. He's going to go into the Macedonian region and visit churches there. He's going to be going into the Acadia or, or the, the region of Greece and visiting churches there. And, and ultimately, he's visiting those areas and he's encouraging those saints. But, he, but he's collecting money to give to the poor saints that are in Jerusalem. So eventually, and we'll look at these verses in a moment. His goal is he's trying to get to Jerusalem to encourage the church there and take care of the poor saints there. But then we also realize that that's not even his ultimate goal. As we see in Acts 19, he's not just trying to get to Jerusalem, but he wants to get to Rome. Why does he want to get to Rome? We'll go read the letter to the Romans and we find out. He says, I cannot wait to come preach the gospel to you. I want to impart some spiritual gift to you. I want to help the saints in Rome. But then you realize he's not even just trying to get to Rome. He's trying to get past Rome to Spain. He's going to all these reached people groups where he's already been. And he's trying ultimately to get to Spain where they have not heard of Christ. So, so we see Paul as a, a gospel 
schemer, a gospel planner. He's always planning his life to how can I advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we see these two things that, that we've said the whole time through the book of Acts that we need to imitate these two things in Paul. That he wanted to win the lost and he wanted to build up the body of Christ. Those two things. He wanted to win the lost and he wanted to build up build up the body of Christ. And we see him absolutely devoted to this and, and, and we want to be devoted to that as well. So, he's, so in this passage today, the, the gospel schemer is building up the body of Christ in all these regions he's already been and ultimately he wants to get to an unreached place where he can preach Christ to these people. We can preach Christ. Now, before we get into the passage, I just want to read a couple of things to you. Because what I want to focus on today is the love, Paul's love for the church. He loved them. And in this gospel scheming, he, lo he loved the church. Now, look, just listen to a couple of these verses. You don't have to flip there. This is 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Listen to verse 7. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our, our own selves because you had become very dear to us. Listen to that language. Like a nursing mom, like a nursing mama with her children is what he puts up as a visual of his heart towards these people. He loved them. It says, affectionately desirous of you. You have become very dear to us. This man loved the church of the Thessalonians. He loved them. Listen to Philippians. Philippians chapter 1. Verse 8. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. The affection of Christ Jesus. We're thinking about that one Jesus who died on the cross for our sins, who took our punishment, but He didn't just do it mechanically, but He has affections for us. God so loved the world that He sent His only Son. He loves us and He has affections. And Paul says, I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ. Think about the love this man had for the church. I yearn for you all with the affections of Christ. And that's just a small taste of Paul's love for the church. And he wanted this to be in other people that were around him. He wanted this to be in the church. He wanted this to be in other laborers. Listen to Philippians chapter 2. He speaks about Timothy. He says to the Philippian church, I hope in the Lord, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him. He says, I've got nobody like Timothy. I've got no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. So what's he saying here? He's thinking about Timothy and Philippians 4 1, the way Paul talks about the Philippian churches, he says, my beloved and longed for brethren. He has affectionate love for the church. He loves the church. And he says, I'm sending Timothy to you. I don't have many like him. I don't have anybody else like Timothy that will be genuinely concerned for, for your welfare, that really will love you like I love you. I don't have many like him. And why? Why aren't many like him? Because so many seek their own. They're selfish. They seek their own things, not the things 
of the Lord Jesus. So I'm talking to you about Paul's love, his deep, deep love for the church of Jesus Christ. Now, why am I talking to you about that? Because of our passage today, Acts chapter 20, verse 1 through 12. If you just do a, an initial sur surface level reading of this passage, it, it, it doesn't seem like there's much there. There's not much doctrine or theology that's being presented. There's not a whole lot of practical calls to obedience in this passage. There's not a lot there in that sense. But as I read this passage and meditated on this passage and studied this passage for hours and hours, what just seemed to float to the top, what seemed to shine out of this passage is, man, look at how much this man loves the churches that he's planted. Look how much he loves the church of Jesus Christ. And so I want you to see that. Uh, it really, this passage really reads sort of like a travel log. So this is the travel log of the gospel schemer. He leaves out of Ephesus, and we're going to see how he eventually goes into Macedonia to Achaia and eventually lands in Troas, ultimately trying to get to Jerusalem. And we just kind of read his travel log, but as you read it, I want you to keep, keep an ear out for the affections, the love that this man has for the church, and ask yourself that question, do you have that love for the church of Jesus Christ? Do you carry these same affections for the church of Jesus Christ. So let's read it. Start in verse 1. <clears throat> After the uproar ceased. Paul sent for the disciples. And after encouraging them. He said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he had gone through those regions. And had given them much encouragement. He came to Greece. There he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day. And he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as, as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in, taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alone for his life is in him. When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So let's walk through this passage line by line. What we see in verse 1 is Paul's love for the church at Ephesus. And we see an affectionate love for the church at Ephesus. So let me read verse 1 again. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples 
And after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. Do you remember what the uproar was? He was in Ephesus preaching the gospel, making disciples. Uh, so many souls were getting saved. It was literally changing the moral climate of Ephesus. And as it does that, the people that sell the little, the little idols, the little silver false gods, are beginning to lose business and therefore lose money. And so they get angry and they, they lead out a mob or a riot to drag even a couple of these men mentioned here that are accompanying Paul. To drag a couple of these men into the stadium and they're screaming out for hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. To this great uproar, this dangerous uproar, it says, when that had ceased, look at what it says, Paul sent for the disciples. Now try to imagine that, that the uproar ceased in Ephesus. Here's this place where he's been laboring for several years now. And, and Paul knows he's about to leave, but what is he going to do first? He gathers together. He says, hey, y'all, go over there, go over there, go over there, get all the disciples Get all the Christians to come. I want to see them. I want to see the church one more time before I leave. Bring them here. So imagine that. He gathers up all the disciples. Why? It says, next phrase, after encouraging them, he brings them together, the disciples. He wants to encourage these people. He loves this church. He wants to encourage them. His heart is to comfort them, to build them up. He wants to do that. Now, he's been with them for three years. Think about how much he's preached to them. Think about how much he said to them. Then he says, one more. Give me one more word to him. He loves this church. He wants to, it says here, encourage them. Now, this encouraging the churches is a theme throughout these 12 verses. We see it in verse 1. He encouraged them. You can see it in verse 2 as he goes to the, this Macedonian region. It says, when he had given them much encouragement. You see it again in verse 12 as he leaves Troas. It says, they were not a little comforted. That's the same Greek word, encouraged. They were very encouraged. So this is a theme throughout these verses that Paul wants to encourage the church. This is a loving act of encouragement he wants to pour out on them. Then it says in verse 1, and he said farewell. Now some of your versions may say, and he embraced them. Because the Greek word there literally means when he said farewell, it means he embraced it. This is the way they said goodbye. This is a goodbye filled with affections, filled with love. He's, he's holding these people tight. He's, he's gripping them in his arms and telling them goodbye as he encourages them. This is, this is a goodbye filled with affections and love for the church at Ephesus. Now, if you want to see that in another place, you can look ahead to chapter 20, verse 36. Now, what's happened here is a little bit later. Several, several months later, you've got uh, Paul in a certain place and he gets the elders, the leadership of the church at Ephesus. Come here, I want to talk to you in Miletus. And he begins to address them. And at the end of that time, look at this time he has with the elders of the church at Ephesus. I want you to see the affections and love here. Verse 36. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. You can just feel it as you think about him spending time with this Ephesian church and these last encouragements and these last words that he gives. That he loves these people as he embraces them and encourages them. Verse 2. <clears throat> In verse 2, we see his love for the churches of Macedonia. And what we see here 
And his love for the churches of Macedonia is his encouraging love. He wants to encourage them as we saw in verse 1. Look at it, verse 2. When he had gone through those regions, which we know from the end of verse 1 is Macedonia, when he had gone through those regions and had given them much encouragement, that's what it highlights, he came to Greece. Now, Macedonia is a region that Paul had already been to to plant churches. These are uh, areas like, remember Philippi in Acts 16, remember Thessalonica in Acts 17, or Berea in Acts 17, and any other churches maybe that aren't recorded. But th this Macedonian region is an area he's already been to, and he's already planted churches in these places, and he's going back and revisiting these churches. Now, if you remember, these are dangerous areas. In Philippi, he was locked in a jail. In Thessalonica, he was beaten and run off. In Berea, he was run off by persecutors. So, this, so he's willingly in, in love. He's willing to move back into these, to these dangerous areas to encourage the saints here. This is a love-driven encouragement. You see, you see it says, after he had given them much encouragement. His heart was everywhere he went. So he might be a gospel schemer. He might be thinking about the next place he's going in the plan to advance the gospel of Jesus. But that doesn't imprison him because everywhere he goes, he's a fragrance of Christ. He wants to encourage them everywhere he goes. And I want all of us to be like that. I want every single one of us to be gospel encouragers. Filled, I want to think about it like this. Filled with love for the church. I want all of us like that. Filled with such love for the church that we just long to encourage one another, to be on offense, to, to build one another up and encourage one another like we see his heart here. And so let's talk for just a minute about what it means to encourage brothers and sisters in Christ. I would encourage you to do a word study, to grab this particular Greek word, encourage, and look up every place where it's at in the New Testament. Now, as you do that and you look up this word, encourage, you're going to see a few places where it's the picture of somebody weeping or mourning and being comforted. You're going to see a few places like that. But most of what you're going to see as you do a word study on this word, encourage, is, is this idea of bringing them to your side, to put your arm around somebody, to beseech them, to exhort them, to, to, to bring them in close to you, to charge them. That's the idea of encouragement and the encouragement that he lovingly gave to all these churches. Now this is, I want you to think about this. This is not worldly encouragement. We've got to get that out of our head. Not a worldly encouragement. Not, not the, uh, uh, just, just, I just want to make you feel good about yourself. That's called flattery. This is, I want to make you feel good about God through His truth. I want you to feel good about God as I show you His promises, as I encourage you with His attributes in His Word. I want you to feel good about God, not yourself. This is not worldly encouragement, but godly, biblical encouragement. In Psalm 119, verse 50, I believe it, it says, This is my comfort in my affliction. That your promise has given me life. This is my encouragement and my affliction. Where do we get encouragement from? Your promise, oh God. The promise is in His Word. This is godly, biblical encouragement, not the worldly kind. Think about the word encouragement. To add courage to somebody through the Word of God. And everywhere He goes, He's in Ephesus, He encourages them. He's in Macedonia region, he encourages them. As we see in a minute, he's in Troas, he's encouraging them. He's got his arm around them, pressing them forward, exhorting them, beseeching them. This is an encouragement of love. Now, as a church, I want you to think about this for a minute. Do you, do you 
view your life like that? that, that, that are, are you devoted? Do you see encouragement like that? Uh, is your life devoted to, I want to encourage the body of Christ. Here's my exhortation to you. Don't be back on your heels. Not sitting around waiting for somebody to go through some sort of tragedy. But just to have this disposition like we see in Paul here. This disposition that I'm going to see the body of Christ. And I love them so much. I want to encourage them. I want to take something from God's word to put, to put before their eyes that their soul might be lifted up. Do you have that kind of disposition? God, I, I want us to all have that. I want us to all be on the defense with that. I mean, on the offense with that. Excuse me, not just on the defense, but on the offense with that. Verse 3 shows us his love for the churches of Greece. You could say Achaia, as it says in other places. But verse 3, there, talking about Greece, as we see in verse 2, there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Now, Greece was another region that he had been to. You got uh, Corinth was there, Athens was there, as you see in Acts 17 and Acts 18. So these are places where he's already been to and he's already planted churches, especially as we see here in the church at Corinth. Now, it says here that he spent three months in that place, which we know from First and Second Corinthians, that this means he spent three months in Corinth. He might have done some traveling around, but here he spends three months here. Now, why? Why did he do that? Now, you know, the most basic reason is this was during, as we know from First and Second Corinthians, this is winter time, uh, and, and the ships weren't sailing out like they usually do in this season, and so he stayed there for three months. But, but seriously, like, why did he land there at that time? Why did he stay three months? He's, uh, chapter twenty, verse. Uh, 16 tells us he's making haste to get to Jerusalem. So why does he stop for three months in Corinth? We, we have an answer for that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Listen to this. In chapter 16, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 5. He writes the, the Corinthian church in Greece here a letter. And he says, I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, which you just did, as we read in Acts. For I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For, here's the reason, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. And I want you to hear the, the love in his heart for the Corinthian church. He says, look. I'm going to come to you and I hope to spend winter with you. I don't want to just see you in passing. I want to spend time with you. I want to spend time with you. Now I say that this, this is a sacrificial love from Paul. Now why do I say this is a sacrificial love? Because if you read the context of what's going on, if you study 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, what you realize is this is a painful visit. This three months in Corinth was not easy. Paul has been rebuking them for their sin. They've been having doubts about Paul even being an apostle. They've been butting heads. This has not been an easy situation with Corinth. You get that when you study the letters to the Corinthians. It's been painful. And so this visit is painful. And so what we see here is sacrificial love that he's willing. I want to spend three months with you. I want to come and spend. I don't want to just pass through. I want to spend time with you. You know, this is when love is really tested, right? Love is not tested. Your love for the church is not tested just when everything's peachy. Everything's going great. 
When it's tested is when times get hard, when business get painful, when sin gets involved. What are you going to do? Are you going to run away? Or are you going to be like Paul and lean into that and love these people? This is a sacrificial love. He wants to spend his winter. He wants to spend his winter with these people. He don't want to run away. He wants to draw closer to them in hardship. Now, at the end of these three months, it tells us in verse 3, he faced some opposition. He faced some opposition. Now, that's not new. Everywhere he went, as we read through Acts, he has faced opposition everywhere. Uh, Jesus said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's what they did to the false prophets. We should take heed to that. If you're a gospel labor, you will be opposed. And it's the same thing here. It's nothing new. He's opposed, it says here in verse 3. Now, what's the opposition? It says that there was a plot from the Jews as he's getting ready to sail to Syria. It seems like it was something along the lines of he's about to get on a ship. He's about to sail to Syria. And there's a bunch of Jews that are going too. They're probably going to get there for Passover and Pentecost. They're trying to get to Jerusalem in time. And he finds out this plot that they're going to throw him overboard. They're going to try to kill him. And so he says, well, I think I'll take a different route. And so he takes an alternate route and he... He ends up going through, as we're about to read in just a moment, through Troas and through a few other places. Now, here's something that I love about God. The opposition here, the opposition to the gospel, the opposition to Paul here, leads him to take an alternate route that ends up being very fruitful for the kingdom. Don't you love that about God, that God takes the opposition from the enemy and God bends his opposition to do his will? We see that clearly at the cross, right? That, that at the cross of Jesus Christ, what, what do we see? That what, what was Satan's involvement in having Jesus killed on the cross? It says that Satan put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. What was Satan's involvement? So here's Satan's involvement to kill Jesus at the cross. In that very death at the cross, Hebrews 2.14 says, Through death, Jesus destroyed the one that has the power of death, that is the devil. He used his own schemes and his own opposition to do his will. And we see the same thing here as Paul takes an alternate route that actually proves to be very fruitful for the kingdom. Verse 4 through 6, we're going to see now his love for the church at Jerusalem. This is a giving love. This is a love where he's, he's wanting to give to them. He's wanting to give, uh, give resources, finances to them. This is his love for the church at Jerusalem. Now, it's going to be a little bit harder to explain this, so let me let me do some work here. Go with me. If you read verse, start in verse 4, it says, Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, so that guy's with Paul, and the Thessalonians, so two guys from Thessalonica, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby, and Timothy, and two Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. So here's this crew this team of men that's with Paul on this trip. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days, we came to them at Troas where we stayed for seven days. So what do we see here? You got a team of men that are accompanying Paul. Okay. Now there's a few reminders here. There's a reminder that Paul cannot do this by himself. He doesn't try to do this by himself. In fact, none of us all do. He was a laborer. And out of love for the church and all the world and love for the church and to every generation, we are called by God to give these things, as 2 Timothy 2, 2, 
Give these things to faithful men who better teach others also. We see Paul doing that. He can't do it by himself. He's raising up labors for the love of the church and for the love of the glory of Christ. There's a diversity in this team here. We always talk about being a Berean. Well, you got a Berean here. He apparently has a famous dad or at least a well-known dad. you got Thessalonica send out Aristarchus and Secundus. If you dig into those names a little bit, you have an aristocrat, a, a political leader here, and you've got Secundus who would be a slave. And they send out a political leader and a slave. You've got a diversity of these people. And so here's this team. Now, more importantly than who they are is where they come from. We've got people represented here. So, so Paul goes into the Macedonian region. He goes into the region of Achaia. And you've got people represented here from those churches that he visited. You've got people coming from Thessalonica. You've got people coming from the church of Berea. You've got people coming from the Asian churches like Ephesus. You've got people coming from, you've got a representative coming from Gerber. So why is that? Why are these people coming from these different churches? And here's what's happening. And I want you to understand this. These are representatives from these churches. As Paul goes into these regions, he's collecting money. And through these representatives, they together are going to take it to the poor and suffering saints in Jerusalem. They say, how do you know that? Let me just mention to you a few verses to help you know that with me. Acts 19.21. Just going to read a few verses here and try to put this together. Acts 19.21 says, Now after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, which we've seen him do, Macedonia and Achaia, and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. So, so his plan is to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, but he's trying to get to where? To Jerusalem, and then eventually to Rome. He's trying to get to Jerusalem. Now go to chapter 20, look at verse 16. For Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he might not have to spend time in Asia. For he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. So again, what we see is he's, he's going through these regions and he's picking up representatives from these churches. But he's trying to get to Jerusalem. Why? Why is he trying to get to Jerusalem? Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 16 again. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 1. Listen to it. Now concerning the collection for the saints. Now what's that talking about? The collection for the saints. As I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. He's talking to the church of Corinth. On the first day of, the week, of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper. So that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit. Listen to that. When I arrive, I'm going to send those whom you accredit, a representative, by letter to carry your gift to where? To Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. This is what's been happening in the region. You see the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. It talks about the Macedonian churches and the Corinthian church. One more verse here, Romans chapter 15. You should make sure you see this clearly. Romans 15. He wrote this letter during his three-month stay in Greece. And in Romans 15, he says this. Look at verse, verse 24. I hope to see you in passing 
So to the church in Rome, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while at present. So here's what Paul's doing right now. Remember, he wrote this during that three month stay in Greece. He says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. That's what he's going to do. He's bringing aid to the saints in Jerusalem from Macedonia and Achaia. That's those two regions have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. So here we see, what do we see Paul doing? What is the love that's being expressed here? Paul is willing to go through these dangerous regions where he's already been beat down, persecuted. In one place, he was even stoned to death, at least almost dead. And in these, and in these places, he's willing to go back into these places Collect money, bring together these representatives to go back to Jerusalem where it's also dangerous for him. Where he's eventually going to go to jail, he's going to be in prison. And he's willing to go through all this for what purpose? Man, he loves the saints there and he wants to care for them and give to those poor saints in Jerusalem. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture of the love of Christ. Let me read this verse to you in 1 John. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 16 17. A giving love. Verse 16 says, By this we know love, that he, talking about Christ, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the, bro for the brothers. Listen to that. This is how we know what love is. Look at Jesus. Look at the one who laid down his life for us. And then he says, and we also ought to lay down our lives. Now, the practical application is coming in verse 17. And what you would think that he would say is, therefore, practical application here, if your brother's about to die, die in his place. If the bullets come and take the bullet from for your brother. But listen to what he says. He gets much more practical than that. And look at what he says in verse 17. But if anyone has this world's goods... And sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? How does God's love abide in him? And so what we see in Paul and these other brothers and sisters in Christ, these other representatives, is a, a, a giving love. They want to care for the saints in Jerusalem. Now, verse 7 through 13 Verse 7 through 13, back in Acts 20, we're going to see a love feast in Troas. A love feast in Troas. Now, it says they stayed in Troas for seven days. You see that in verse 6. So they stayed in Troas for seven days. They stayed there for a week. Apparently, there's already a church that's been, been planted there. But then here we see one of those days is highlighted. The last day that he's there. The first day of the week, what we call Sunday, that day gets highlighted. It's been there for seven days. But this, but this day, this first day of the week, this Sunday, is actually the day that's highlighted here. It says here in verse 7, on the first day of the week. Now, why is that day highlighted? Why is it highlighted? Because this is an important day. It's a, it's a big deal. It's not to be taken lightly. In fact, in the scriptures, this day is given a name. Revelation 1.10 calls it the Lord's Day. Today we meet up to worship Christ, to build each other up. This is the Lord's Day. 
important. In 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 10 through 14, we've got chapters in our New Testament that are devoted to showing us how to worship Jesus Christ on the Lord's day. So why does this day highlight? It's an important day. It's not to be taken lightly. Now this is our first view, and maybe our only view in the book of Acts, into, into the early church's Lord's day meeting. We actually get insight. We get to we get to peek into what did it look like for the early church as they met together on the first day of the week, like we're still doing today. We get a little insight. We get a, we get a little peek into to what they're doing here. And I, and I called it, I entitled it a love feast, a love feast in Troas. Now, why did I call it that? <clears throat> Jude twelve. You can go read that later. Calls it a love feast. Have you ever thought of it like that? Love feast, Grace Community Church, gathering together. Do you think about the Sunday gathering like that? A love feast, as it says in Jude 12. Now, here's the thing. We, I, here's what I take from that. We have got to see the regular assembling of the church, the regular meeting on the first day of the week like we're doing now. We've got to see this as the love feast or as, as the place where love for the body of Christ is expressed. Do you see it that way? That this is the place we, we gather together, not just out of routine, but because we love the body of Christ and I want to see them and I want to know them and I want to encourage them. You see the, the, your Sunday, you see the Lord's Day like that. When, when this day is neglected, like it says in Hebrews 10, 24, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. When, when this day is neglected by members of the church, do you see that? It's not just a lack of discipline. It's a lack of love. I neglect this meeting. Why? Because I don't love these people. I don't care for them like I ought to. I want us to make that connection. This is the, this is the love feast. Now, as we peek into this early church gathering, verse 7 through 13, we read it just a moment ago. As we kind of peek in, there's some things here that are unusual or unique that, we don't, that, that obviously doesn't continue on in every Lord's Day gathering. And there's some things here that are normative, things that are uh, that are standard that we still continue to do today. So I want us to think about that for just a minute. The normative things here, as we as we look at these in just a moment, as far as the unique things, for example, a unique thing: an apostle is teaching. Uh, God falls out of windows, raised from the dead. That didn't happen every Sunday. Okay. Um, uh, normative things: they're taking the Lord's supper. The word of God is being taught. They're lingering in fellowship together. Okay, that's the way I want you to think about this peak into the Lord's day. Now try to envision this scene. Okay, we read it just a moment ago. Try, try to envision this scene. You got people, they're packed into the third story of some, of some building. Okay? Now we know third story because it says that Eutychus fell out of the third story. So, so they're packed in to the third story of some building. And it says here in verse 8, if you look at it, there were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. So just try to envision that. Everybody's packed in there. People are sitting next to the windows like Eutychus. You got lamps are all over the place. Smoke's going up. Smoke's billowing out the window. It's nighttime. It's the reason that the lamps and the torches are there. These people are packed in there. And they're doing these things. They're, they're walking in the Lord's Supper. As we see in verse 7. They're hearing much teaching. A lot of teaching of the Word. As we see also in verse 7. They're lingering in fellowship, as we see at the end of the passage. I want us to talk about those normative things for just a moment. Let's talk about those normative 
Lord's Day leading things that they're doing. So number one is the Lord's Supper. So the meeting, the, the Lord's Day meeting of the local church is to be a Christ-centered meeting. You see that in the Lord's Supper here, right? Verse 7, let's just read it. On the first day of the week, when we gather together to break bread. Now, do you think like that? Your son says, Daddy, what are we doing this morning? Son, we're going to break bread with the church. We're going to communion. We're going to remember Christ's body broken for us and His blood being shed. Daddy, what are we going to do? We're going to remember the cross through the Lord's Supper, son. You think about, you think about the meeting of the local church in that Christ-centered way. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20, you can go look at that later. It warns us about moving away from this. He rebukes him and he says, he says, when you gather together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. When you gather together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. He's warning them. It's a, it's a warning to us about moving away from this Christ-centeredness. And we're especially seeing it in this participation in the Lord's Supper. Second normal thing that I mentioned, this is to be a word-saturated meeting. We see that in this meeting. Okay? We see them uh, with a heavy focus on teaching. Look at verse 7 again. When we were gathered together to break bread, it says, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Right? Now, the, the Greek word here we're talking about his teaching is, is, is there's a formality to it. If he is standing up like we see Jesus in the synagogue reading from, reading from the church. Remember, uh, 2 Timothy talks about Paul carrying around his parchments and his books. Remember that? And so he's, he's reading and he's teaching. He's exhorting from the word of God. That's the idea of this word. So what, what people often focus on when they see this teaching in the Lord's Day gathering of the local church. What people often focus on is uh, the length of the teaching. How, how long did Paul teach right here? That's definitely uh, something to notice with interest. But the thing that I think we're supposed to be seeing more clearly than that is look at the thirst for the word of God in this meeting. Notice, notice that. Notice the thirst. Notice the longing for the word of God in this meeting. He's teaching and prolonging his speech even to midnight and they're thirsty. The people of God are gathered together thirsty for the Word of God. The Lord's Day meeting should be marked by that. I want to read this to you from uh, uh, Derek Thomas, is a Presbyterian pastor. He's commenting, he was commenting here on the link of, of Paul's preaching on this particular Lord's Day. And Derek Thomas says this, I think it's a good push. Unusual as this may be in some parts of the West, it is not at all unusual in certain other parts of the world where services continue for several hours. It's only in our highly time-conscious, soundbite world that the Holy Spirit is restricted to 25 or 30 minutes. Whatever we may make of this, and this was not necessarily a customary pattern of the church, we must conclude, though, that there was a remarkable thirst for the Word of God. They were eager to know more of Jesus Christ. They wished to be instructed in the faith. Think about it. As we read this passage, he's teaching the word and a young boy falls out of the window, dies. They raise him from the dead and don't take him home. They bring him back into the meeting 
and it's not over till daybreak, all night meeting. These people are thirsty, thirsty for the word of God. I'm going to actually read that verse eight about that event. Excuse me, verse nine. And a young man named Eutychus. Now that idea of young man, think, think uh, uh, about eight to fourteen years old. We're talking about a young boy, eight to fourteen years old. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul taught still longer. And being overcome by sleep, imagine this distraction in the church meeting. You thought that train going by. Listen to this. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. He fell and died in the middle of the meeting. But Paul went down, and, and honestly, you really need to see the beauty in this. It's missed so often. Paul went down and bent over him. And you have these pictures of the Old Testament of Elijah and Elisha, and even of Christ and the Gospels, of coming over these dead ones and raising them up from the dead. Here's a reminder that this is an apostle before you. This is one of the last reminders, the last signs of the apostle that we see. That this man, this man was, was a uh, scripture writer from God. Look at what it says. Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, do not be alarmed for his life is in him. He raised the man from the dead. And it says in verse 11, and when Paul had gone up, he went up and took the boy back upstairs too and broken bread and eaten. He conversed with them a long while until daybreak and so departed. And they took the youth away alive the youth, that's you because they took him away alive, finally took him home, and were not a little comforted, which means they were really, really comforted. They were really, really encouraged. So what I want you to see there is a not only a Christ-centered meeting in the Lord's Supper, but a word-saturated meeting with the teaching of the Word of God and the people thirsty for that. And then number three, I'll mention this, is the, the meeting on the Lord's Day. This meeting is meant to be a meeting Marked by lingering fellowship. Now, there's probably a better word. You study the word fellowship and what it really means. We tend to misuse it today. But the best way I know how to communicate this now is just this lingering fellowship with the body of Christ. And here's where I'm getting that from. If you look at verse 11, it says, After, after uh, midnight, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. Now, that word conversed there about what Paul's doing is different than the word that we saw in verse 7. Verse 7, there's a formality to his teaching the word. But here in this word, this Greek word, there's a back and forth. There's a, there's a, uh, a back and forth, a conversation between them. They're lingering in fellowship together. They love one another. And they're lingering in fellowship. He's, he's trying to just enjoy their presence and, and enjoy speaking with them about the most important matters of life. He's just, it's just love motivated conversing with one another. As it says here. So think about this love feast at Troas. This love feast at Troas. Very simple, right? Four things we saw here. So simple. You got Sunday set apart, the Lord's Day. Number two, you got the Lord's Supper here, Christ centeredness. Number three, you got the teaching of the Word. And number four, you got lingering fellowship. Now, here it's interesting. That's so simple. And that encourages me so much. Do you know why that encourages me? The simplicity of that? I want to tell you because I want you to be encouraged in this too. Think about this. Grace Community Church. And this meeting we're having today. 
in the meet the Lord's Day meeting that we've had week after week after week for the past six years, we are just a small, small link in the in the chain. But the chain is a very long chain that goes all the way back to the book of Acts. We're just doing the same thing they were doing then. And that's encouraging. You can even see if you, if you, you can go read uh, Justin Martyr's writings from about 150 AD. Here's a guy that, that you know, could, could know a guy that hung out with the Apostle John, you know, from 150 AD. You can read his writings and, in the, and there's a part in his writings where he's writing to the Roman Senate. And the reason he's writing to the Roman Senate is because there are all, all these rumors going around about these evil things that the Christians are doing when they do their secret meetings. Imagine the secret because they're being persecuted. But there's all these rumors. So he writes, a, he writes a letter to the Roman Senate and says, this is what we do in our meeting. And what do you find? If you go to read it, you find the reading of the Scriptures. Somebody teaching the Word of God from the reading of the Scriptures. Taking to the Lord's Supper. Standing up and praying to God together. Collecting, collecting money to, to, to help the poor, help the needy. It's the same thing that's been happening. So here's what... Here's why that encourages me. God has always used meetings like this to advance his gospel and build up his local church. He's always used this. And so we're just a small leak in a really long chain. Believing in the sufficiency of Scripture. That we don't have to come up with a new way to do the Sunday, uh, Lord's Day gathering. We don't have to come up with a new way to do it. God's word has instructed us and we just trust him. We just do what he told us to do. God uses so I want to encourage you not to take it for granted, uh, not to take it lightly. There's definitely a temptation, right? Hebrews 10 says uh, not to forsake this assembly as is the habit of some, but exhort one another. And so much more as you see the day approaching. See, there's going to be a temptation to take this lightly. But, but listen, from, from all the way back in the book of Acts and all the way through history, God's been using meetings just like this. To build up this church and glorify his name. Now, let me just finish with some closing exhortations here. And I just want to mention a few things about those five points that are understudy God. There's five things there. Closing exhortation is this. So number one, Grace Community Church. Love the church with affectionate love. Like Paul did in Ephesus. See it in verse one. How are your affections for the church of Jesus Christ? Number two, GCC, love the church with an encouraging love. Like Paul in Macedonia and Acadia and Troas and everywhere else he went. With this, this disposition that I'm not sitting back waiting. I'm not back on my heels. But I lean forward going, how can I encourage my brothers and sisters in Christ? I'm not waiting for a tragedy. I want to encourage them now. I want to take up... Dig into the deep wells of God's word and put it in front of them to encourage their souls. Love the church with an encouraging love. Number three, love the church with a sacrificial love. Like Paul in Corinth. Um, when things get hard, what do you do? When conversations get painful, when there's disagreement, when there's things you need to forgive and forbear, what do you do in those moments? You run away from those conversations or do you lean right back in because now your love is being tested? Love the church with sacrificial love. Number four, love the church with a giving love like Paul and the others towards the church in Jerusalem. You know, when Paul was writing to the Corinthian church and he was trying to encourage them 
to give to the church in Jerusalem, he, he, he put the gospel in front of them to show them this. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. He says this to them. He says, Corinthians, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the grace. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty... Think of him hanging there on that cross. Through his poverty, you might become rich. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And Paul takes that gospel and says, let that be a God to you. And how you deal with giving. You see your brothers and sisters in need. Help them. Help them. And then number five, don't waste your Lord's day. Do you think rightly about this day? That you're experiencing right now. We're reading an example in Troas. And you're experiencing one of these uh, in similarities right now. Uh, don't waste your Lord's day. Do you see this day as an expression of your love for the body of Christ? Man, I love these people. And they're all gathering together in one place. And I want to be there. And I want to encourage them. I want to help them. I want to know them. I want to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Don't waste your Lord's day. Don't waste this gathering. Don't waste this meeting. I know there's difficulties. Uh, to this day, uh, and the encouragement there is the, the church of Troas had difficulties too, right? In fact, in one of their meetings, the guy fell out of the window and, and died. Difficulty. That's difficult. You have difficulties, so do they. We see a thirst for the word and coming together, and yet, and it's an encouragement is push through these difficulties. Now, I know, I know, um, one common difficulty with us, obviously, is is a lot of infants and little babies around. And I was thinking as I was studying this passage, just to be encouraged by Eutychus's mom, right? Eutychus's mom, like, honey, my child fell out the one and died. Be encouraged. Push through. Go after Christ. Love the body. Push through the difficulties together. That's what we're here for. Press through that. And so I'll encourage you lastly to be faithful with your Lord's Day. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage of Scripture and this example of love for the body of Christ. I pray, Lord, that you would strengthen us. God, I praise you that in so many ways, Lord, we see you doing this and you've done it. That you have made us a people with affections for each other and with constant encouragement and, and giving and sacrifice. And you've made this Lord's Day so sweet to us. But God, we know, and we praise you for that, but God, we know we haven't arrived. We haven't arrived, Lord. And we know that we're in danger of falling away from it. To growing cold. To growing hardened. And we don't want to do that, God. So we ask you, Lord, please keep us. Please hold us. Fill our hearts with visions of the love of Christ. And the way you, Lord Jesus, gave yourself for us. And I pray, Lord, that you would, you would encourage our souls to turn and to give ourselves for one another. Fill our hearts with affection, Lord. Lord, give us the desire and the ability to encourage each other truly from your word. God, keep flattery far away from us, but teach us to encourage with your word. God, I pray that you would use this simple, not, not a fancy meeting, God, but just this simple meeting you called us to. Week in and week out. God, I pray you use it to build up the church. Help us not to waste this day. 
and the ones that you would give us in the future. We love you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.